so it went from being like, oh, we can do this public health work to like, oh, we can't do this public health work. And then, like you're saying, you know, we put too much pressure. We expected schools to be everything. And now they can't be and people are upset. Hello and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired podcast network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit adhdessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? Registration for the Fall 2020 ADHD Essentials Online Parent Coaching Groups is open, and they're already filling up. In these highly effective groups, you'll work with me and your fellow group members via online video chat to talk about all of the parenting challenges brought about by COVID-19 and ADHD, and you'll learn effective ways to manage them. We'll discuss everything from developing parental leadership and strengthening family connection and communication to overcoming the walls of awful that affect your household, managing anxiety, and practicing familial self-care. And given that the effects of COVID-19 aren't going away anytime soon, we'll also address maintaining friendships and family relationships while self-quarantining, navigating an uncertain school year, managing our own and our kids' mental health, fostering resiliency, and working from home while the kids are too. But perhaps the most powerful part of these groups are the connections that you'll make with other parents facing similar struggles. The groups run for eight weeks on Mondays and Wednesdays at noon or 5 p.m. Eastern. They begin on Monday, September 21st and end on Wednesday, November 11th. Go to ADHDessentials.com slash parentgroups. A-D-H-D-E-S-S-E-N-T-I-A-L-S dot com slash parent groups or email me at brendan at adhdessentials.com to register for a free information call. And as I mentioned, these groups are filling up already, so contact me today. I'd hate for you to miss out. Be sure to check the show notes for links on how to sign up for your free information call. And of course, check out our partner podcasts, ADHD Rewired and Hacking Your ADHD. In ADHD Rewired, Eric Tivers shares excellent interviews with ADHD experts and adults affected by the disorder. And Will, for his part, shares practical, actionable tips on how to manage your ADHD with his show, Hacking Your ADHD. And finally, a big thank you to Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies. I greatly appreciate his support in editing these episodes. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to Victoria Crisp, a former special education director and founding head of student support at Bentley Academy in Salem, Massachusetts. Victoria is an educational consultant with a restless passion for helping children and their families. In today's episode, Victoria and I talk about the complexity of public education. This one's got a lot packed into it, folks. We discuss the many facets and stakeholders involved in reopening schools during COVID, the many and varied expectations that we put on schools in order to address society's various ills, what Victoria does as an education consultant, homeschooling pods, 
and why effective reading instruction is so important. All right, let's get rolling. So my name is Victoria Chris. I own a company called Crisp Education. We provide advocacy services and tutoring and a variety of different types of educational consulting to families. I started as a teacher many, many years ago, special ed teacher. Um, I taught for years and years at a variety of different levels. Um, and then I went on to be an administrator and I worked in large urban districts, which was an amazing experience but it can be super tough. I worked on, I ended up kind of specializing in turnaround education projects, which are, you know, written about in all the education journals. I was part of any of those that you hear about in the Boston area. I was probably part of the team that did those turnarounds. And then I came up to Salem and opened a charter school, the Bentley Academy Charter School, which was another turnaround project. And after that, I kind of decided it had been like, six or seven years of being in this really intense urban turnaround education business that I wanted to step it down a little bit for myself. I wasn't sure what that looked like. So following that progression, you know, I started doing pro bono consulting to families, to schools. Then I turned it into a business and here I am. That's a really impressive body of work, turning around as many urban schools as you've worked with and starting your own charter school. There's the potential that my audience is listening and going, let's talk about that. We're not going to, because I really brought you on to talk about COVID. So maybe later I'll bring you on again and you can talk about the schools you've turned around and what that process looks like. And it's going to inform this conversation anyway, because sort of all of our schools are in crisis at the moment because of COVID-19 and because of the fact that we are in person and we're hybrid and we're virtual and we're sort of all of the above. and Eventually, it's all going to turn into virtual anyway because schools are going to get shut down because kids are going to get COVID and teachers are going to get COVID and unprecedented absenteeism is going to happen and then it's going to be virtual. Like That's just where we're heading. But before we go deep into the COVID stuff, what is educational consulting? You mentioned that you do that. What does that look like? So there's lots of people that do educational consulting and I think that it means different things. What I do is you know, I try to use what expertise I have gained to help families and occasionally schools or a charter school or somebody who needs some help with special education. I didn't call myself a special education advocate because I felt like what I was doing was much broader than what typical special education advocates do. So I consult on any educational issue that a family is having difficulty with, who would like kind of an expert, if you will, opinion, or an informed opinion, maybe is a better way of saying it, on making, helping to make educational decisions. And when you worked in administration, what was your role? Were you like a director of special education? Were you a principal? What did that look like? I was a special education administrator in three different cities in this area. One of the districts was Boston, where you oversee, you know, there's 130 schools. And um, nothing compares with that kind of experience and training because you just can't get that anyplace else. Um, Boston is a huge training ground for lots of people in educational administration. Almost, you know, so many of the superintendents and special ed directors that are out there in the world right now had spent some time in Boston around the time that I was there. So it's kind of like a cohort of uh, administrators. And it's tremendous experience and you get to see so much and it's amazing. But unfortunately, I think there's like a high burnout rate 
call it like burn and churn. So there's a limited lifespan for a lot of people on, on doing that work. And then they kind of try to go out and find something different that they can do, similar, but not the same. Uh, and then I went to some other uh, local cities that needed some help with some turnaround projects. And turnaround stuff is super hard because um, there's lots of factors and lots of people involved in your turning around to failing school. So that goes into that. That's kind of where we are with COVID, right? Is this, there's a lot of factors. There's a lot of uncertainty about why we're going back to school or not going back to school or doing virtual and what's best for my kid and my family. I know my listeners have a ton of questions about that. So I like that we're starting with, it's complicated to turn things around because that's what we're really trying to do is we're trying to turn around the aftermath of a global pandemic and really the during math. Is that a word? It is now. Yeah, it is now. The during math of a global pandemic. We're trying to navigate all that. You know, there's all this like education lingo. And when you're in Boston, you're in like the middle of education lingo. And I thought I'm never going to repeat any of these phrases ever again in my life. But there was something that people used to say is like, oh, well, we're building the plane while we're flying it. And, you know, this is we're building the plane while we're flying it. We're like trying to figure out what to do about schools and keep things as normal as possible in the middle of a pandemic that we don't know a ton about. It's kind of ridiculous what's happening right now. Yes, 100 percent. And prior to recording, one of the things that we talked about, the phrase I brought up was the free and appropriate public education, right? FAPE, which is what legally schools have to provide is a free and appropriate public education. And that's really hard, right? It's one, the term is kind of loose. Free is clear, appropriate, there's some wiggle there. Public, pretty clear, education, pretty clear, but that appropriate word is a little vague. It's kind of a weasel word because what's appropriate now is not what would have been appropriate a year ago because things are so much different in terms of what the situation is. I like how you drew a link between turn turnaround education and what's happening right now, because you're 100% correct. There are so many factors in play right now, and not to diminish politics, unions, school administration, teachers, families, kids. They're all stakeholders, and it's hard, super hard to come to consensus with all of those groups about what we're going to do. And I think that um, part of what we're seeing is the difficulty in coming to any type of consensus about what we're going to do. And that's why there's some people are going back in person, some people are going back hybrid, and some people are doing virtual. And the people that are offering the virtual, if it's not like a live teaching from, you know, Miss Smith's fourth grade classroom in Marblehead, it's a, you know, a big company that's doing it and they're making the lessons right now. So yeah, we're building the plane while we're flying it for sure in this scenario. And it's not good for education. I think one of the things that education kind of had going for it was that it's an institution. There's some benefits to having things done the same way for years and years and years, for a hundred years, to have learned from that experience, to have procedures and policies in place to kind of make this run smoother. And this is just a disruption in that. And it's, you know, it's not, it's not beneficial. But I do sometimes think that it's eye-opening for families to watch what's going on, to think, oh, 
well, this isn't what I thought was going to happen or, you know, I'm surprised they're making these decisions or why is this so hard or, oh, wow, people have such varying opinions on this, which I'm not sure that would have been brought to light had this not happened. So I think it has the potential to open up a bigger discussion about public education, which is thought to be the great equalizer. And, you know, when this is all over, these hopefully these discussions will continue to happen about the institution of public education. Yeah. And the idea that public education is supposed to be the great equalizer, we're seeing the lie put to that, right? Like we're seeing just how unequal our education system is based on effectively socioeconomic status stuff. It's just not all the same. As soon as we had to shift for virtual, do you even have the internet to shift virtual? How are you going to do that? It, like all of a sudden there's schools bringing iPads to kids' houses. There's schools providing some houses with internet. That happened too. Yeah. That to me, it sort of shows two things. One, it's, it's highlighting the nature of our education system as really being our safety net for everything apparently, which drives me nuts. That's not the job of schools. Schools should not be the ones figuring out that people don't have the internet and giving them the internet in the same way that schools should not be your primary mental health solution, but they tend to be. And that overwhelming of schools is part of why we're seeing teachers going, no, I don't, what else do you want me to do? Now you want me to go and risk my health to teach your kid when I could do that job over the internet. And I feel that I understand that. But I also understand the other side of like, but I, my kid has to go to school because I have to go to work. Right. Yeah, totally. So when I was an undergrad, I studied what they call full service schools or what they used to call full service schools, which is now schools. So, and it was talking about bringing in mental health counselors and health clinics. And, you know, in the urban districts, they have schools that literally have, that are attached to, they've made a health clinic, they've made like a full service health clinic, full service mental health services social services, et cetera. And, you know, that doesn't happen in wealthier communities. Now we're in the middle of a pandemic and schools can't be full service. You know, you take a bunch of really smart, really educated people who care, who are super passionate about kids and education. And they're like, yes, we'll do all of this. 100%. I'll take on all of it. We'll do this and we can do more and we'll figure this out. Let me come up with solutions for this child and this family. And then you shut that down. And I think people are like, whoa, that's huge. Like, where'd my huge, gigantic help go? I worked at a school, low socioeconomic population at this school. And in an effort to help solve educational problems, that school implemented some amazing policies that are totally full service type stuff. There was a dentist that visited that school and did work with kids' teeth. There were eye doctors that came to that school and got kids' glasses. There were laundry services at that school to provide kids with the ability to wash their own clothes because they didn't have the resources to do that. And, and part of the logic here is one of the few places in a town that almost everybody has contact with is a school. And that's why the full service school concept starts to come up. Some of it is to help kids and support kids and give them the things that they need. But also it's the understanding that like 65 to 75% of your population in your town is going to in some way at some point get connected to that school. And so if that becomes a community resource as opposed to just a place for learning, 
you're going to be able to help more people because more people will be connected to it. And I both love that idea and feel like it's asking too much of teachers because that's kind of the twist that happened is it, it ended up falling on the teachers to be the community resource for everything as opposed to funding this idea well and bringing in eye doctors and mental health clinicians and, and stuff. I'm, I'm almost surprised teachers weren't expected to learn a little bit of optometry so they could help give kids glasses. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, in some districts, they might have been, to be honest with you. Um, so, yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And I, I, it gives us a good opportunity to go back when this is all over and, like, look and see where the gaps are and, like, where we can do better. And they were doing, they were using schools as public health research centers for a long time in terms of a lot of the public health data that they were mining. Prior to information about COVID, we were looking at different types of public health data on a regular basis. Like the Youth Risk Behavior Survey, which is like a national survey that collects data on 100 data points or more, and that's implemented in schools. But schools are not hospitals and they're not doctor's offices. So when you're talking about public health in terms of a respiratory infection, et cetera, that's extremely contagious, they're not equipped for that. They're not sterile teachers don't have medical training. So it went from being like, oh, we can do this public health work to like, oh, we can't do this public health work. And then like you're saying, you know, we put too much pressure. We expected schools to be everything and now they can't be and people are upset. That's where we are now, right? Like all of a sudden COVID has hit us and we did not respond well to it as a nation. One of the areas that we're challenged by here is the nature of falling behind. And I use that term loosely. Because if everybody is falling behind, no one is falling behind because you're all sort of on par with one another. You might be falling behind a previous generation or something, but you're not falling behind your peers because your peers also got a crappy education. So last year, schools ended weird, not the best education at the end of the school year, except that resources play a role in all of this and socioeconomic stuff plays a role in all of this because the kids whose parents can afford to provide them with tutors and, and educational consulting, people like you and me, right, are going to be advantaged over the kids who can't provide those services. And I don't love that, but I also don't know what to do with that. Like it's so far above my pay grade that it's not a problem I can solve. But I do want to call it out because I don't want to pretend that that's not an element of this conversation. And, and I try to be honest with my, my guests and my listeners. But you and I connected over the idea of homeschooling pods. And, and the concept there is that you're sort of taking a few kids who are mom and dad are not comfortable with their kids going to school. They're not loving the virtual school option. So they're trying to come up with an alternative to that. And one of those alternatives was homeschooling pods. Can you walk us through that a little bit in terms of what that idea is? And does it look like it's working? Does it look like it's not a good plan? Where does that land? This is like a brand new concept. Well, to me anyways, I don't know if there was any need for this fire. Um, homeschooling has always been a thing, but this is a very different, this micro school type of situation due to COVID. So I think the idea was to get small groups of kids together and provide some kind of learning, loosely the definition. Small group, open to interpretation about what that is. To me, a small group is like four. To other people, it's 10. To other people, it's 20. I don't think the 20 is a small group. That's a class. Yeah. <laughs> It was either going to be like parents running them and then they were going to maybe do the online version or then I was like, listen, 
I feel like I've opened a whole entire school before. I can do this. I can provide the service. I feel confident that I can provide the service. I know curriculum. I will get some curriculum. I will teach groups of kids. You know, we only need to do like 10 hours a week for really it to be like a full school day. That's what they offer, public schools offer for full-time tutoring is like 10 hours. So if you're getting 10 hours of like direct instruction with a teacher in a group of four, you get a ton done. And I think that people are having like decision paralysis about what, what to do and does this, this cost money and how much is too much money and how come this doesn't cost as much as having a babysitter and public school is free and all of these kind of issues. And then like, I don't, you know, we only want people that we've already been exposed to. So therefore they might be in different grades. You know, I've run into some situations where parents would be like, you know, we don't want so-and-so he has basically like, I know that he has a disability and I'm like, Oh, I'm not running like, discrimination <laughs> education pods like uh, now I'm in like I didn't anticipate that happening like I'm not really comfortable with that like we'll take all learners so it's getting complicated like all education is and I don't know why I of all people underestimated the level of complication that's going to be involved even getting four kids together to do grade level work wow even just four kids was a struggle yes four families four moms four kids for dads, you know, everyone's got an opinion. Everybody wants different things. Some people are kind of like go along, get along. Some people have a, a very strong opinions. All it takes is like one person to like not want to do one thing one way. And then the whole pod's kind of like off kilter. That makes sense. So it sounds like it's not really an idea that's working, at least in your experience. I'm not loving it. And also there, I mean, I'm still open to it. Like if there's a group of people who want to do this, I'm still going to provide it. If I think it's feasible, then I'll provide it. If I don't think it's feasible, then I'm not going to. But there's also all of this other talk like online and people keep asking me about, is this illegal? And I'm like, well, all right, hold on. Like, is hiring a tutor illegal? No. Is getting four kids together with a tutor or a teacher? Probably not. If you want to rent out, like, there's some like facilities that are like big open spaces and they want to hire a teacher and bring a bunch of kids in and charge people money. I'm like, if it was safe to do that, we would open schools. There's a local uh, roller skating rink near us that's trying to do that. And I was like, that doesn't seem like a plan. No, not a good plan. And also, then there are agencies that oversee things like this, although this has never existed before. Um, The EEC oversees things and licenses facilities because what you don't want is a situation where people are, are running something that looks like an illegal daycare. And you don't want people that haven't been background checked and quarry checked around your kids, ever. What is the EEC? Early education and childcare. The EEC has regulations for good reasons, because unfortunately, children are at risk of being abused by people who are abusers. And they seek out opportunities where they can do that. So that's why agencies like DCS and the EEC have very strong regulations about safety and licensing. I I think that people need to keep that in mind because schools, we're already on top of that. We're fingerprinted, we're quarry checked, we're mandated reporters. We have a ton of training in all of this. And what does like the local roller skating place have in place for, to make sure that like everybody's safe? I don't know. And also, I don't think you could have 10 kids there paying tuition without being approved by the EEC. And that's a process. And I don't even know if they're open. And that all brings us back to schools doing everything again, right? Because there's your school looking for children being abused like that and being trained in that. 
Yes, that was my biggest concern when schools close. Because of the work that I have done, I often am the person who is in the closest contact with DCF in a school. I work with kids who have horrific trauma histories. And I know those kids exist. And I know the role that I have played in intervening. And if there isn't somebody like me seeing them every day, you know, what's happening. And that brings me to one of the, one of the, I don't know, tilting at windmills things that I'm seeing on Facebook and social media right now, where people are posting all over the place about how parents whose kids didn't do any virtual schooling last year, who just didn't show up to the virtual schooling are getting contacted by DCF about, Hey, your kid didn't show up. And like a lot of those parents are probably not abusing their kids. They're probably just like, this isn't working. It's a joke. I'm not doing it. And I can't say that I blame them. I understand that perspective. I don't, it's not the perspective I took, but I understand that perspective. And those parents are coming from this fairly innocent perspective of like, why is DCF contacting me? Well, it's because there's also parents out there who were like, oh good, my kid isn't going to school. I can do whatever I want now. And I don't have to be so careful about losing my temper or whatever it is that I'm doing with my kid. I mean, it's worse, so much worse, so, so, so much worse than losing your temper. Like, I don't want to go into it right now, but like, I don't think it's a bad idea that somebody's checking up on kindergarten, first, second, third graders whose parents haven't signed them up for school and they haven't logged on because what is going on? And it's not, it's often not just a parent losing their temper. It's like so much more than that. Yeah. Hopefully majority of the cases where DCF or whatever agency is rolling into those homes and going, Hey, your kid didn't go to virtual schooling. What's up? They're just going to go, Oh, okay, cool. Like we get it. No harm, no foul. Make sure your kid goes to school next year. Right. And, and off they'll go. And people, I think, I think a lot of people are really worked up about something that is a protective measure and is not going to cause them any personal inconvenience outside of a conversation. Right. And I think that if you don't want that to happen, just communicate with your school. Right. About what you're doing. Because I've even gotten that for parents who are thinking about hiring a private teacher. They're like, oh, well, what's going to happen if we don't use the online learning? And I'm like, well, we need to have a conversation with the school department about that. Because here's another thing is if kids withdraw from school, they lose funding. So guess what schools don't want kids to do? Withdraw and do homeschool. That's like however much money they get per child, per pupil, per pupil expenditure is gone. So I think the smart districts are saying, we get that this is temporary. We're happy to work with you. Like we have to communicate. Everyone's doing the best they can. Anybody who's making like hard and fast rules about this stuff, I think is missing the boat. Yeah. And if you're, if you're looking to homeschool, right, which and I'll be straight. My listeners don't know this. That's the option I'm taking. Yeah. I am super uniquely positioned to take that option. I control Correct. my schedule. I've got a massive education background. I've been a teacher and a principal and a counselor. Right. My kids are going into sixth grade. I taught sixth grade. Makes sense. But one of the things that I'm looking to do is, and I haven't gotten this answer yet, I'm going to find out what the per student funding is that my school gets. We have a thing called the Colonial Fund in my town where you can donate to the school. If I can match that, I will. And if I can't match what they're losing because we're not in the school district, I'll get as close as I can because I don't want them to lose that funding because my kids are going back to school next year. Like for seventh grade, they'll be in school again. This is not a permanent homeschooling thing. This is a, 
trying to let COVID get brought under control and avoiding the in-school stuff and knowing that my kids are not going to do well with virtual learning run by the school. It was just not, it's not going to work. It's going to make everything a lot harder, including my job. <laughs> It'll be easier for me to do my job if my kids don't virtual learn. So that's why I'm taking the, the road I'm taking. But that's an option for folks who, if you're thinking of homeschooling, but you're concerned about the budget stuff, if you can throw a little money into the school fund, whatever that school fund is, consider doing it. Well, and also I think the districts have an opportunity to be flexible and not lose the funding and to not go a full official homeschooling route, to do some kind of hybrid virtual learning um, where the kid stays enrolled, uses some of the virtual stuff, but the parents are communicating with the school and saying, we have a private teacher, here's what we're working on. And if this is a short-term thing and they're, and they're opting for the virtual learning only, like what are, the, what are the requirements of the virtual learning? Can the child meet that and do their private teaching? And that's kind of what I did last year. Last year, I taught my kids English and history, and they virtual learned science and math. So that's that's sort of the hybrid part that you're just des- that you're describing. And speaking of English, I'm gonna wicked pivot. This is like the most graceful transition ever. Yes, except that it's not. But you know, it's an ADHD podcast. If we can't turn on a dime, <laughs> so one of the things that we've talked about prior to recording that I want to make sure I ask you about is your passion around making sure people are aware that kids who miss direct instruction on reading, right? So we're talking elementary school here, often end up being diagnosed with learning disabilities later on. Can you walk us through that so that parents of younger kids are tuned into that and maybe parents of older kids can make some connections that they might not otherwise have made? I'd be happy to. So I kind of want to go back a, a smidge in my history here. There was a time that I was going to be a clinical social worker. And I went to work at the school who service kids with very severe, what they call emotional impairment. Usually it's a terrible trauma history. And I just thought, I, I don't think I can do this because I can never fix this problem. I'm never going to fix this kid's trauma. I'm never going to like emotionally support this child to the point where they're like, oh, fixed, ready to have a normal life now. So I decided that being a clinical social worker wasn't for me and felt kind of adrift until I learned how to teach reading because I could take a student who had a terrible trauma history and teach them how to read and be like, I just taught you how to read. Now you know how to read. Now you can make progress in your life because it's the most important thing they're going to learn in school is how to read and be a good reader. So that really changed so many things for me personally, my outlook on things, my outlook on education, and what's driven me in my work in these districts around making sure that, you know, we don't, we can't control all of the factors of these children's lives. But what we can do as educators is teach these children how to read. And that is huge because they're going to need to know how to read to do everything else in life. And there's so much reading science that's available to people that we know that kids need phonics instruction. Some kids need more of it than others. Some kids get a little phonics instruction, pick it up and run with it. Other kids need a few years of every day um, reinforcing those the phonics instruction. And that's still within the normal scope. That's not for kids with disabilities or weaknesses in those areas. Then you get to kids who might have some areas of weakness, reading disability or kind of a neurological impairment, which is the dyslexia. So that would be like the spectrum of things. Some weakness all the way to pretty serious dyslexia. 
and you treat it all the same way. You teach phonics. You teach sequential, phonics, reading, comprehension, vocabulary, writing. So when we look at disabilities, one of the things that it's a rule out factor for identifying a specific one's disability is lack of instruction. I don't know what they're going to do now for lack of instruction when you're qualifying a kid for a specific learning disability because they've had lack of instruction. So what is that going to look like this year, next year, the year after that? If kids miss six months to a year and six months of instruction or good instruction, quality instruction in some of these foundational skills, and now they qualify as having disabilities. So I think that this is an unfolding process. And for reading disabilities, I think it's really critical to focus on foundational reading skills, vocabulary, comprehension, depending on like how old your kid is and where they're at with um, reading. And if you have the means, reach out to people who can help you with this, people who understand the process of reading. Um, me, <laughs> I can help you with this. Other people can help you with this because there are ways that we can kind of detect where the deficits are and fill them in. And once they're filled in, they're good. Once kids have enough fill in, they learn to compensate and then they're kind of like off and running. So I can't stress enough to everybody listening. And this doesn't have anything to do either with how smart your child is. People are like, oh, my child's so bright. I'm like, yeah, tons of kids with learning disabilities are really, really bright. But if they didn't get that phonetic sound and they don't have good word attack skills, the older they get and the harder the reading material is, the more difficulty they're going to have. Two thoughts that I want to add on to that. One, even if you think you don't have the means, still pursue it because there are groups out there who are aware of what's going on with COVID and the significance of it and are trying to help so that know that that exists as well and two since you're someone who can help how can people find you i have a website it's called crisp education advising i tried to do a good job of social media-ing um on instagram at crisp education on facebook at crisp education advising c-r-i-s-p Education advising is the website because crisp education wasn't available. So um, since I advise, I add that on to the end of it. And all of my, you can Google it, crisp education should come up in the Google results. What specific services do you offer? Yeah, so many things. <laughs> so <laughs> many things. I am right now feeling like a jack of all trades. I am doing groups, education. I mean, so I'm certified K through 12 as a, as a teacher. So I can, you know, it's interesting to parents are like, well, how do you know what they're going to teach? And like, well, it's the curriculum framework. Like, it's like magic. Like, I'm like psychic. Like, I, I'm psychically getting these vibes about like, what, you know, on the fifth grade curriculum. I'm like, I'll look them up. So that's one thing. You, everybody can look them up. They're called the curriculum framework, a derivative of Common Core, which people may have heard of nationally. Sort of, because the English frameworks for Common Core are Massachusetts frameworks. They just took them and... Use them for the national ones. <laughs> but we just don't want to call it the same thing just because we want to make it more complicated. So <laughs> I'll do teaching and tutoring of any kind. If you think you have a problem with learning, if with, with your school, if you want to talk to somebody, I always say just call me because I don't expect you to be a, an expert in this. I don't expect you to have the right language to describe it. But if you're feeling like there's a problem, you should call me and I might be able to help you. And if I can help you, then I will. I try to liken it to, do you hire a tax accountant to file your taxes? 
I do because I don't know anything about taxes. And if I had complicated taxes, that would be even worse. Like, and that's like you have regular kids, kids who learn typically, whatever that means anymore. And then kids who have will struggle at various points in their education. And you need somebody to help you with that. I think it's, I think it's smart for people to get somebody to help them make these decisions. I don't think they should be expected to pretend like they know how to do all of this and how to interact with the school and what to say and what to agree to. I think it's always in your best interest to have representation. You don't go to court, right? And be like, well, I just trust the judge. I just feel like the judge is like the judge. He's like a good guy. And like, this will be good, right? Uh, Not always. No. (laughs) Get a lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. So just being mindful of time. Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? I guess I would say this is a tough time for everybody for so many reasons. Um, If you've listened to this today and you think that I could be helpful to you and you want to have a consultation, you want to talk about something that's going on, please reach out. I do free consultations and, you know, I'll do what I can to assist you because I know that this is tough and I'm happy to help. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com, and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.